This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend warriors of Michigan politics and government. Another turbulent week of Michigan politics in the state capitol. We had a little bit of everything in the state capitol. An anti-Governor Whitmer demonstration with armed protesters. Uh, Protesters in the gallery were thrown out of the House at one time. We had a one-hour Gretchen Whitmer press conference, and we had legislators meeting for three days. The crux of it all, as everybody knows, is Governor Gretchen Whitmer's determination to extend her state of emergency executive order for another 28 days. Whitmer has continued to insist that all of this roiling around in the state capitol this week was not a political problem, as the Republicans claim, but an unprecedented pandemic over which she has full legal authority to preside. Republicans argued that she was acting like a, quote, dictator, unquote, and that her emergency order should not be extended more than two weeks without their approval and that her lockdown on Michigan businesses must be lifted sooner rather than later. Now, I won't go into all the statistics on the number of cases and deaths and whether we are, quote, flattening the curve, unquote. You've all heard enough about that. The bottom line is what is going to happen ultimately. And I will just point out that the Senate and the House this week both passed resolutions giving them the authority to sue the governor in court. The Michigan House and Senate on Thursday also voted to replace the state's current controversial state of emergency and unilateral executive orders stemming from that state of emergency issued by Governor Gretchen Whitmer with similar legislation that protects the emergency measures put in place over the last two months. The Speaker of the House, Lee Chatfield, said, and I'm going to quote here, we need to take decisive action to fight the spread of the coronavirus, but this governor's unchecked and undemocratic approach is the wrong way to do it, he said, unquote. Continuing with Lee Chatfield, quote, the current status quo relies on one-size-fits-all edicts that unfairly punish millions of people across the state without giving them any recourse or voice in the process. The people deserve a better solution, and we can provide it, unquote. Now, the bill that the legislature passed, kind of an omnibus bill passed by the House and Senate, without immediate effect, by the way, in the Senate, which really makes it moot, was called Senate Bill 858, and it replaces 27 of the governor's existing executive orders, but not the stay-at-home order, to prevent any loss of critical protections during the pandemic. Putting them into legislation also means any future revisions and extensions must be worked out in a public bipartisan process. Important pieces replaced in the bill 
include protections against price gouging, a relaxation of the certificate of need requirements that allows hospitals and clinics to expand operations, and extensions of tax deadlines, among others. Lee Chatfield, I'm going to quote here one last time, said, quote, the idea we want to put an abrupt end to the state of emergency order and go back to normal immediately is a lazy political talking point, he said. And I'm continuing his quote. We all agree Michigan must continue taking strong steps to fight the spread of this disease, but we can both protect the public health and protect the individual people who make up our great state. Right now, more than one million people are out of work and they are reaching out to us asking for help. Under this plan that the legislature passed on Thursday, we can get them the answers they deserved, unquote. Now, having said all that, to me, the governor has been clearly winning almost every battle and continued to do so this week. But will she win the long-term war with the Republicans? Polls continue to show that a hefty majority of Michiganders support her handling of the coronavirus crisis anywhere from 57 to 65% in various surveys. She seems to have the law and even the Constitution on her side. In fact, two laws. One passed in 1945 called the Riot Act and one in 1976. If this confrontation ends up in court and there is already litigation pending with the Republican-controlled legislature on the way in hot pursuit based on their resolution that I just mentioned passed on Thursday, who wins? It would seem to me that a strict reading of the laws means The governor does, at least in the short term. But the real question is, who defines what a health-related crisis is? How extensive does it have to be for a governor to continue indefinitely to act unilaterally? Most important, how long should a state of emergency be allowed to last? And is the governor the only person allowed to decide that with no check or counterweight from any other public official or institution. Governor Whitmer has said she expects the crisis to last, quote, for a long time, unquote. And her medical advisor says it could easily last into 2021 and as much as 12 to 18 months. Does that mean that the governor could keep the state in emergency status deep into next year or later and issue countless executive orders flowing from it that would dictate What businesses can operate and when and under what circumstances? That's apparently where we're headed, unless some court or panel of judges rules that there must be some restraints in place. Suffice to say that Gretchen Whitmer is exercising gubernatorial power in a far bolder way than any of her predecessors dating back nearly 200 years. And right now, the public appears to be backing her up. One last thought. Remember, we fought a revolution in this country 250 years ago against a king and a British empire that American colonists felt was too autocratic and domineering. And the democracy devised in this country by the founding fathers from the federal down to the state and local levels was purposely designed with a system of checks and balances to avoid the possibility that an omnipotent executive 
could ever again hold sway. So let's see what develops next, but it appears inevitable there is going to be a court battle coming up. When might it be decided? Will it be decided in the next couple of weeks, in the next month, in the next few months? Is it going to drift on while there is the governor's extension of her state of emergency order, which, by the way, at midnight, approximately Thursday, she did reissue and extend for another 28 days. Will that be in effect all this time? Or will the message that the legislature has not ratified this, has not agreed to extend it, percle down to the general public in a way that makes them feel, you know what, we can start operating as if business should be as usual. In fact, some businesses have already opened up that are clearly supposed to be closed. And barbers, for instance, have said, we got a lot of customers out there waiting to be sheared. And so we are going to open our doors, and they are. How many more business establishments are going to just defy the governor's order and say, hey, the legislature has not approved this? So this is a momentous moment, I think, uh, coming up. And we'll be back in a minute with our first guest to talk about something that is a sideline result of the shutdown, the stay-at-home order of the governor. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. Okay, folks, as you know, because of the coronavirus pandemic and the governor's executive orders, all Michigan K-12 schools have been closed in terms of their buildings being closed through the end of this academic year. So they've had to resort to teaching online, and we are very fortunate to have a return engagement from Holt High School, iconic high school teacher, Ann Jacoby Russo, the indomitable Ann Russo. Welcome back to the Political Insider. Thank you. Thanks for having me back. That's quite the introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ann Russo has found new ways to bring her love of film, that's motion pictures or video or whatever you want to call it, to her students. Uh, She's been featured in the Detroit News. She's been featured in The Gander online. Um, And I would just say that even from the confines of quarantine, Anne is connecting with her students through the magic of movies. Anne Russo, who teaches the study of film as literature to juniors and seniors at Holt High School, has been dressing up as her favorite film characters and posting the pictures for her students in an online Google Classroom. She's put on Michael Myers masks. Indiana Jones leather jacket, Charlie Chaplin's hat and mustache. We could go on and on, but I want to let 
Ann Jacoby Russo tell her own story. Ann, take it away. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, it's been quite a ride, actually, um, from the, the moment I put on that Michael Myers mask and decided to go out in the cold with my, my kiddos and get some pictures just kind of for fun. Um, it's really evolved into something that, you know, so many people are enjoying and, and I'm enjoying. And, I mean, my kids are enjoying to a, a degree as my photographers, but um, it's really been awesome to see so many of my students um, right up until last night, actually. Um, I had a student post a side-by-side uh, -side picture from the movie Call Me By Your Name. And, um, I mean, they're just, they're trying to have fun with it because, you know, school right now is not incredibly fun being uh, trapped in your house and, um, you know, trying to get online and sit in front of a screen. So it's, um, it's a way for my film students in particular to just uh, get away from those screens and their computers and dress up a little bit and have fun with my assignments. Yeah, you've got two children. I think they're both around 12 years old, Wyatt and Waverly. And what, you take them outside and they take pictures of you dressed up like these characters, like another one I think is Pee-wee Herman and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Uh, yes. And, and you're in a costume. And then you send these pictures through Google Classroom to your students. And your idea is what? To get them fired up about, hey, there's my teacher, Ms. Russo. <laughs> I can do this, too. I can pick out a film that I like. I can dress up. I can take pictures. I can post this on Google Classroom for all the other students and for Ms. Russo, too. Is that kind of the idea? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. It's really just a fun way for students to – I've divided the um, weekly assignments into genres, as I would, you know, pretty much similar to what I'd do if we were still going to school. Um, and, I, you know, I've had students uh, dress up as characters from Get Out and Evil Dead. So we had our thrillers unit that we were wrapping up. Um, I had a, a bi biopic and an adaptation unit where students would pick a favorite character from a text and dress up like it, um, or some, you know, famous person, um, like an American gangster. I've had, uh, you know, a, a comedy unit, and I've had students dress up like characters from the Goonies, and they've gotten their parents involved in the pictures. And it's just, again, it's a fun way for students to not only revisit um, films that are longtime favorites and talk, like, we'll type about them now instead of talking, um, obviously, since we're at home, but um, they also get to dress up if they choose. It's all, you know, it's just extra. It's not required that they dress up. But if they want to, it's just a fun way for us to see what they're watching and how they're matching um, a still from that particular movie, like I've been doing with mine, um, to the, you know, to what they've dressed up as. So it's been really, it's been really uh, kind of exciting seeing what they're coming up with. Well, now, as I understand it, uh, you've taught film at Holt High School for about 10 years. Is that correct? Yeah, yep. It's been a long time. It's probably been more than that. I'd have to go back and look specifically, but it's been at least a decade. Yeah. Well, you and, and a fellow teacher, I gather, you were the ones who really got this program going. I mean, it was your idea, wasn't it? Yes. Yep. So my, my beloved colleague who's retired in Texas right now, Deb Childers, uh, she and I just loved movies, and we decided to add an English elective um, to our curriculum 
and we molded the class primarily from what I had learned from Dan Holt, my film professor at Lansing Community College. And he, um, we, we actually, through all this, we just reconnected on uh, social media, and he just told me that he's teaching an online film course for the first time this next semester. So he's still at it. I mean, I had that class way back in 1996 or 97, so uh, I just wanted to reach out and appreciate, you know, tell him I appreciated what I learned and, and how influential he was in creating this class. And, um, and I just, you know, so I appreciated it so much. Yeah. Are there any other schools that have film as literature courses in the curriculum around Michigan that you're aware of? Uh, I mean, we got a lot of school districts in this state. Right. Uh, Have Um, you connected with anybody, heard about it? What? Yeah, I mean, there are a few. It's it's always an interesting conversation when I talk to people outside of, you know, outside of Holt High School. When I tell them I teach film, they are usually surprised, oh, I never had that class in school. I would have, I would have loved to have a class like that, and I've gotten a lot of comments like that on my social media with these pictures I posted also. Um, and I know for a fact my intern from about six years ago, my intern teacher from MSU, she started her first film class modeled after mine um, at South Lyon High School. So she presented her curriculum much as we did, and she was approved, and she is now teaching film at South Lyon High School. Yeah, you're re-educating your educators. The people <laughs> yeah. that got you started, they're being <laughs> re-inspired by what you're doing. Well, let me ask you, uh, getting away from the online aspect of it right now, I mean, when you're back in the classroom and you're teaching this, I mean, do you have full showings of movies? Do you analyze the movies themselves? I mean, whatever movie it might be, you might pick it out. I think your favorite movie from what I read in the Detroit News article is The Wizard of Oz. Uh, yes. And and have them look at it and analyze it and talk about it. Is that what you do? Yes, we, we start the course um, with a lot of technical aspects and a lot of historical um, short films just so they can understand how far we've come and what elements are necessary um, for a team to make a movie because it really is a team effort. And we take so much for granted when we're watching the films at home or in the theater um, as far as what production is like, really like. And so we learn a lot about that the first uh, few weeks of the semester. It's a lot of lecturing, which I'm not you know, a, a huge fan of lecturing, but it's a lot of kind of groundwork that we lay for students to have the knowledge to discuss the film um, from a thoughtful, you know, educated perspective. And um, so for, say, our thrillers unit, um, it's a thrillers through time unit that we were just starting when we had to leave school. Um, we started with um, Nosferatu clips, and then we went to Rear Window in the 50s and Psycho in the 60s and moved through with Jaws in the 70s. Um, and we just watched those and talk about them and learn a lot. Wow. Listen, I could keep asking you about this. I mean, literally from uh, Birth of a Nation and Charlie Chaplin all the way up to the present. And Jacoby Russo, Holt High School teacher of film as literature, our guest. And she's told us how she's coping with coronavirus. She's making the best of it. Thank you so much, Ann Russo. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. I'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. 
We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have as our guest, Kara Duma, who is a longtime political consultant operating most of the time behind the scenes. But I think she's coming out from the shadows a little bit more recently. She is now director of research for D2 Strategy and Research. Uh, she also does you know, some political consulting on her own. Kara Duma, welcome to the Political Insider. Thanks, Bill. It's nice to be here. Well, now, Kara, you look at a lot of polls. I mean, that's what you do. You analyze what you see in surveys, public opinion surveys, polls, whatever you want to call them, about candidates, about issues nationally in Michigan. What jumps out at you that you've seen here in the last month or so from all these polls? Well, first, I think um, it's important to point out that we probably shouldn't be reading too much into polling uh, right now. Everything is just changing so quickly. Um, I think, you know, anything that we're looking at today could change tomorrow. Things we were looking at a month ago are now completely different. Um, like issues, issues in the polls. A couple months ago, um, you know, right before the presidential primary in, in Michigan, I had a survey in the field, and the economy and jobs were not top of mind. Um, you know, when the economy is going well, people turn to other issues like education, the environment, healthcare costs. That that probably has now all changed, but we don't know what it's going to look like in November. We don't know how fast the economy is going to come back, how fast it's going to you know, spring back. So first, I just want to caution that, um, you know, surveys are always just a snapshot in time. It's what it is today. It's not what it is going to be tomorrow. Now, having said that, um, there are some telling trends in in the surveys that I've been looking at both nationally and statewide. First, the first takeaway is that the governors uh, throughout the country are faring pretty well um, dealing with the COVID crisis. Uh, in every state. Yes, in every state. There, there, there are two governors who are below 50%, but um, in every state, governors are doing quite well. Uh, here in the Midwest, Governor DeWine, he actually has the highest ratings of any governor in the country with 83% approval of how he's been handling the COVID crisis. That's Ohio. That's Ohio, yes. Um, obviously, Cuomo's on TV every day. He's at 74% approval for handling of the COVID crisis. Here in Michigan, Whitmer, um, she's at about 63% approval for handling on the coronavirus. And in several polls, she's we've seen in the last couple of weeks, she's at 58% for overall job approval. But... I want to caution what we don't know is how long this bump will last for her and others. For example, until this until the coronavirus uh, crisis, Whitmer's job approval numbers were quite anemic. In fact, she ranked as one of the least popular governors in the country with a paltry job approval of just 42%. So the, the way she has dealt with the coronavirus crisis so far, even though she's got a lot of critics and she's controversial, 
and her executive state of emergency order is controversial. That shot her up in popularity, at least, as you point out, temporarily. But we don't know if three or four months from now that's going to be the case. That's right. In in fact, I think uh, there's some other survey data out there that just came out last week that shows that her approval is probably not deep. It's not um, baked in yet. So uh, there was a survey put out by Fox News. Um, It it was a Michigan-specific poll just last week um, conducted by a bipartisan group of pollsters to, you know, to avoid bias that had Trump and Biden in in the head-to-head with Biden leading Trump 49 to 41. And they then asked for an eight-point lead, and that's what we've been seeing pretty much throughout the last couple of months. That, that, that's here in Michigan. That This is Michigan-specific, yeah. Michigan yeah. yes. So that Biden leads Trump by about eight points. They then followed up and added a question of a Biden-Whitmer ticket versus a Trump-Pence ticket. And uh, Whitmer brought absolutely nothing to the ticket for Biden. In fact, Trump gained two points, narrowing Biden's lead to 6%. Huh. 40, 49 to 43. That's interesting. Yeah, very interesting, especially home state. Um, you know, her approval ratings are up. So what does it mean? I think, first of all, it's a really good reminder to all of us that no one votes for the VP. Um, <laughs> we've, spent a, we've spent a lot of time speculating um, about who it's going to be, but in the end, it just really doesn't matter. Uh but what it also tells us is that Whitmer's current blip in job approval probably doesn't run very deep. Um, when we look at the cross tabs for adding Whitmer to the ticket, uh, we don't see gains where we would think that we would see gains. For example, Biden leads Trump by 20 points among women. By adding Whitmer to the ticket and Pence to Trump's ticket, that narrows to 18 points. So she, she actually causes Biden to lose 2% among women. Very interesting. When we look at independence, it's the same. Uh, Biden leads by six among independents with, with Whitmer on the ticket. He leads by six. So in her home state, she brings Biden nothing. Um, her increased popularity does not translate the vote which leads me to believe at this point it's not real. Right. Let let me ask you, uh, you mentioned the economy at the beginning and how it was actually uh, faded as an issue even back before the presidential primary, which was March 10th here in Michigan. I'm just curious, uh, is that crept up in the polls right now as an issue that people are concerned about because of – the impact on the state's economy that the coronavirus has had. Yeah, absolutely. Um, even week to week, uh, over the last month especially, the number of people who say the economy is getting worse uh, has just skyrocketed to above 50%, like 53%. I, you know, people people are both uh, equally concerned with um, a family member or themselves you know, contracting coronavirus and becoming ill, but 
they're equally concerned, if not even more concerned, about the economy. Yeah, I mean, in other words, are people, when it comes to health, are they interested more in personal health? I mean, it's not so much the cost of health, perhaps, but it's health as an issue because of coronavirus. Is that coming up or is it kind of staying flat as an issue? Uh, well, health is definitely creeping up, but I, I thought more as healthcare costs. Um, but that's certainly something to explore. I think right now we just don't know what the issues are going to be. Everything has been turned um, on its head as far as. Yeah. Well, what about coronavirus, the disease itself? I mean, does that show up in polls? I mean, in previous years, yeah. it never yeah, would yeah. have showed up. I mean, did, people didn't even know what it was. And all of a sudden, here is this monster on top of us. Right. And and is this kind of like overwhelming everything in these polls right now? Yes, absolutely. It, it absolutely is overwhelming everything in the polls. So uh, there are a couple of ways you can deal with that. Um, one is, uh, you know, if you ask an open-ended question, I'm sure coronavirus is going to be the top of the list. Wow. But, um, yeah. Well, listen, we could keep talking about this forever. You're really in a fascinating business at a particularly fascinating time, a gruesome time to be sure. But I want to yeah. thank you, Kara Duma, Director of Research for D2 Strategy and Research. Thank you for being our guest, Kara Duma. Thank you. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back, and we are lucky to have a real actor in the drama in the state capitol this week. Uh, He's a legislator, Representative Ryan Berman, a freshman Republican from Commerce Township. He represents the 39th House District, and I believe that's the city of Wixom and Commerce Township and a big chunk of West Bloomfield. Is that correct, Representative Ryan Berman? Absolutely correct. Well, let me ask you, uh, you're a member of the House Judiciary Committee, you're an attorney, you're also a legislator, you had three days in the Capitol this week at a momentous time that you will never forget, I'm sure. Uh, I'm just curious, what is your reaction to what went on, uh, what you as a legislative body in the State House of Representatives did, and uh, how Governor Gretchen Whitmer has responded, and... We can take it from there. Yeah, you know what? Uh, interesting times, to say the least. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, you know, from th- this whole term of dealing with, uh, you know, this divided government, if you will, the Republican control of the uh, House and Senate and uh, Democrat governor of the first time in uh, eight years. Um, but being a freshman coming in and hearing, you know, kind of how, how things operate, you know, there wasn't really normal operating procedure because of term limits. 
and a lot of uh, the the members we're I'm serving with now didn't don't know what it's dealing with of you know with the governor sending bills over how to react. So a lot of it has been new. And throughout this term and and getting some historic uh, car insurance you know reform and uh, dealing with the budget and all this stuff that comes in the news, you know I think the last thing anybody thought of is having to deal with a pandemic and. <laughs> Um, you know, and we saw that uh, of, of some of this stuff and with the protesters going on yesterday and, you know, maintaining physical distance and, and for the first time having to shut down the, the gallery to the public so members can go up there. Uh, I know one of the staff members yesterday said, you know, he, he's been working there in Lansing for 20 years and that's the first time he's had to see uh, members voting from up in the gallery and, and the, these measures that are put in place. So, you know, we're dealing with a, a novel coronavirus, a, a pandemic, this novel situation, and now we find ourselves in a novel legal situation. I think that and staffer it, could have been uh, 120 years in the Capitol. He never would have seen yeah. that before. <laughs> <laughs> never happened. Yeah, so, you know, obviously memories for, for everybody all around. And, um, you know, I, I come from this and and – while being a freshman legislate, legislator, you know, being around politics, being around the law, uh, having been being an attorney, um, so having that in, different perspective, looking at these things, it, it's funny because the position I'm in now, and in everything, and you you see it nowadays of how political and polarizing, you know, from the from the top down, and everything has become, and, and this is no exception, and. People trying to say it's playing politics or a long party line, and I've just never been that way. I don't, I don't like the politics part of politics. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. It's, uh, you know, I try to do what's best. And, and being an attorney, the way I see this situation now and what happened yesterday and what we're going through, it, it's not political. It's constitutional. Yeah. Well, let me and, let me ask you this question. I mean, given what you face this week with this uh, deadline of midnight Thursday when the state of emergency order expired, how do you feel uh, the House and Senate came out of this? I mean, did what you decided to do and the uh, bill you passed that had all these executive orders incorporated in the bill that Whitmer had issued uh, that you tried to put in statutory form, was that what you would have guessed the legislature would have done? Do you think it's going to work? It didn't get immediate effect in the Senate, so it can't even go into effect. And she says she's going to veto it. So she then comes out and issues her executive order anyway and says the legislature is irrelevant. So what's your reaction to that? And what do you think your fellow members feel about that? Well, I think there's uh, a little bit of of the way the process, how how it turned out, and a little bit of misinformation because of what the original bill did versus the substitute bill. So, you know, being a part of the political process, you can have a bill in there that opens up a section of statute, and at the end of the day, because of time constraints, procedure, whatever it is, and I guess it happens a lot in lame duck is what I hear, is that that bill ends up getting gutted, and the original intent and everything is removed, and something else is totally substituted in because it just happens to be the same section of law. Right. And I think that's what happened here with uh, uh, Senator Barrett's bill, where originally was limiting the time frame the governor has to act uh, with the state of emergency from having it 28 days, and I, I believe it cut it in half to 14. 
And so when you're looking at, and even the public uh, going to a website and seeing what this bill does, is saying, oh, you're trying to limit the governor's powers. That's not what ultimately happened with the bill that was passed. That, that language was cut out and substituted. And exactly what you said is her own executive orders were put in there to codify. And, you know, that is the right move. The whole point of having an emergency and giving the governor emergency powers is to act swiftly in a case of emergency where the legislature cannot meet. Um, now that it's been you know close to 60 days, the legislature is meeting. We're able to do our job. We have a separation of powers for a reason. We don't have uh, one person making unilateral decisions. And you know that's why we have a legislative branch to make the laws, the executive branch to enforce the laws, and then it's then up going to be the judicial branch to uh, interpret. Well, talking uh, about the judicial branch, let, let me cut to the chase here. I mean, you also passed a resolution uh, in the House and Senate uh, giving the Speaker and the Majority Leader in the Senate the power to sue the governor over her right to just unilaterally extend a state of emergency order. And yet she claims that the Constitution itself, and particularly these two laws, the 1945 Riot Act and the 1976 law, give her the authority to do what she's doing, and she doesn't need your approval at all. How do you think this is going to go in court? Um, I, I think if the court goes by the the letter of the law, the spirit, and our Constitution, it's going to go very poorly for her. Um, but, it, of course, if it gets to be a political thing, which it shouldn't, you know, you never know. But we also have abilities, and that's what we have checks and balances for. The fact is, is the Constitution does not give her this authority. And it expressly says otherwise, that each branch of government, one branch cannot hold the powers of another branch. Now, courts have decided in limited circumstances that the executive branch can hold some rulemaking uh, powers as long as they're confined and have oversight and are limited in scope. And that's what we're dealing with here, and that's where she's absolutely wrong of trying to now rely on the 1945 Act that doesn't have a 28-day time period. This whole time, and it doesn't make sense logically, okay, for a couple reasons, of she's already relied on the 1976 Act by requesting the legislature to extend her state of emergency. She sent us a letter asking us to extend, which we did the first time for 23 days. Right. She then sent a letter to us requesting to extend it again, and this time we said no. And then now she's going at which she threatened she would do it on her own. If she could have done it on her own this whole time, why request and ask us in the first place? Well, she claimed it was uh, because if you were going to rely on the 1976 law, it had some protections for frontline workers that might not be there otherwise and that it would be helpful, she said, and a good thing if the legislature could agree that she had the power to extend it based on the 76 law. And, of course, you disagreed. Um and gave your own reasons why you didn't think this would be a good idea. There were other things wrong with her extending the executive order. So it didn't get done. But I guess my question is, does she kind of um, switch her strategy and or her uh, statutory and legal uh, basis for opinion from the 1976 to 1945 law because she thought the 45 law didn't have any language in there requiring legislative approval and she could get away with doing this using 
or citing the 1945 law. Well, what's interesting is in her previous executive order, she cites both as well as constitution of, of being the chief executive. And again, we know is, is the, the executive branch is she has discretion to, you know, whether to enforce or not enforce certain laws, but she doesn't have the discretion to make laws. And that's what these executive and especially the stay-at-home orders is making these, these rules that act as law. For her to switch, you know, going to this 45 Act, her new executive orders that she released last night, she has two of them. One thing about the 45 Act and another one under the 76 Act, again, just starting a new window. Wow. Yeah. Listen, uh, we could keep talking about this. I want to, but we're out of time. I wish we could uh, keep you on longer. Representative Ryan Berman, you did a great job explaining the situation. Republican of Commerce Township, Representative Ryan Berman, thanks for being our guest. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll be back next week with the next chapter. Don't miss it.